0: Read our text for our sermon this morning. We are in Isaiah chapter 51. Continuing our series through Isaiah 40 to 55. Continuing our series through Isaiah 40 to 55. And this morning we are in chapter 51. will please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving. And am the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands, hope for me, and for my arm they wait." Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. This is the glorious word of our God for us as people today. Let's ask Him to bless our time in it. Father, we give you such praise and thanks for the word that you've inspired through your prophets and apostles, this mighty scripture you've given. It is life to our bones. It is healing to our weakness. Pray, Lord, you would break open this passage for us, that you would write its eternal truths upon our hearts, etch them into our lives, transform us, mold our thinking, change our hearts, change our minds, redirect our steps convert our wills, move us in the way you would have us to go. May we believe all you've called us to believe here and do all you've called us to do as we give highest praises, honor, and glory unto your name. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you all know by now, this whole section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, is addressed to Israel in exile in Babylon. And this chapter is no different. God specifically addresses His audience and speaks to them this way. In verse 1, He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the lord in verse 3 he calls them zion in verse 4 he calls them my people my nation in verse 7 he speaks to them as those who know righteousness the people whose the people in whose heart is my law and he goes on like this and for the rest of the chapter in other words he addresses these people as true believers, pursuing righteousness, seeking the Lord, those who have the law of God written in their hearts, those who know the Lord. These are people that are presumed to be believers. And as we've seen, the Lord has revealed these prophetic oracles in these chapters to His people through Isaiah as a proclamation of hope to bring Comfort to them in the midst of their bitter trials in bondage to the Babylonians. They're not on vacation in Babylon. Israel was sacked and ruined and destroyed. The temple obliterated, burnt, left in fiery ash and ruins. And the people, taken from their homes and their families, enslaved, marched off, sold as slaves into Babylon housed in other people's homes and squabbling down in ghettos in Babylon. This is not a vacation. This is horrific for the people. Bondage in Babylon. It's like being sent back to Egypt. And this theme continues in chapter 51. In verse 3, he says... The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. All through this section, God has been addressing these exiles to bring them comfort. And this chapter is no different. The Lord is seeking to comfort Zion. And this is God's word, therefore, to His suffering people. It is His word of hope. It's His word of solace. His word of comfort in the midst of fiery trials for true believers. This chapter is set up like a… something like a dialogue between the Lord and the sufferer. God speaks to Israel as though Israel were an individual, addressing the people as a collective whole. And the back and forth between God and Zion has three natural sections in it. God speaks first in verses 1 to 8… And then Zion replies, and God responds back to them in verses 9 to 16. And then finally, God gets the last word in verses 17 to 23. And these three sections are our three points this morning. God begins with a word of comfort. But Zion responds with a word of confrontation. The people question God they call into question his faithfulness they call into question his righteousness why because of all their suffering so the lord has to correct them the lord has to rebuke them but he doesn't just correct and he doesn't just rebuke his final word comes with comfort and hope god corrects their Challenge to him. They're doubting of him. He corrects it sharply, but the hope remains. The word of comfort is still there. This is God's word to his suffering people in Babylon many centuries ago. But remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 15.3. Paul says, "...whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction." That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This word certainly was not written to us, but it was certainly written for us. This is a word of hope to God's suffering people today, just as it was back then. And if you are going through something today, or if you know someone who's in the midst of some trial, this is God's Word for you. In this passage, God lays a mighty rock in Zion, a firm foundation for you to stand solid, secure, and unshakable Christian. This rock is made of three indestructible elements. It's as though the Lord took the three hardest minerals in the universe and combined them to make the single strongest rock imaginable as a firm foundation for His people to stand and rely upon. What are those three elements? Those are our three points. One, an unbreakable covenant. Second, a faithful creator. And third, a righteous judge. We will look at these one at a time as we go through these three sections of the back and forth dialogue between God and Zion. So first, an unbreakable covenant. Look at verse 1. He says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Right away, God tells us to look to the rock from which you were hewn. In other words, remember where you come from, Christian. Remember who you are. This whole series, we've been talking about this. Once we know who God is, in his light, we can see who we really are. But we got to know who he is so we can understand who we are. And right up front, God is here telling us, remember where you came from. Remember the rock you were dug out of. Remember who you are. And in verse 2, he explains what he means. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one. He was one, one man when I called him. But I called him so that I might bless him and multiply him into a great nation. So in verse 2, the rock from which we were hewn is Abraham and Sarah. Isaiah says to Zion, listen guys, you are the offspring of Abraham and Sarah. They are your ancestors and you are their descendants. And this is supposed to remind Israel of their election by God covenant is election made visible. It's the token of election. God chooses His people and He enters into a covenant as the sign and seal of their election. God chose Israel's ancestors. He chose their fathers and made a covenant with them specifically with Abraham. And he made a covenant that he would be their God and that they would be his people. Now look at verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. This is an elaboration of the ultimate promises that God has made to Abraham and his descendants. This covenant contained the great promises God guaranteed to Abraham and his offspring. And you can read about God's covenant with Abraham all throughout the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 12, 13 15, 17, 22, they just keep piling up. And then through the rest of Genesis, those promises get repeated to to Isaac and then to Jacob. Now here we need to pause and ask ourselves a question. Okay, great. Isaiah made these promises to the offspring of Abraham. So look to your ancestors, Abraham and Sarah. Great. That's great for the Jews. What does this have to do with me, a Gentile? How does this apply to you as a Gentile, non Jewish Christian today? God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Fantastic. But don't the promises to Abraham apply only to Jews and not to Christians? Only to Israel and not the church? What does it mean to be the offspring of Abraham? Does it just mean to be ethnically, racially, biologically Jewish? No. Paul tells us. Go with me for a moment to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. We're going to look at four verses in Galatians 3. Four key points of Paul's argument in that chapter. We don't have time to go through the whole argument, so we'll just catch his conclusion points. Galatians 3, 7. Our question is, who is the offspring of Abraham? Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who's the offspring of Abraham in Galatians 3 7? Those who are of faith. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the blessing promised to Abraham and to his offspring, this says, who receives that? Those who are of faith. They are the sons of Abraham. That's the same thing as offspring or descendants. And they are blessed with Abraham's blessings. Chapter 3 verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings. Plural. Referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular. And then Paul says, who is Christ? Ah, now we're getting somewhere. The promises to Abraham and his offspring were not promises to Abraham and his hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions of however many physical, biological, ethnic, racial, Descendants who could go to Ancestry.com and follow the little leaves back up to Abraham. It was made to Abraham and to Christ. The promises are for Abraham and his offspring who is Christ. Christ is the one who receives all the blessings and all the promises. And that's why faith is, is our access point. When we believe in Christ, we access Abraham's covenant and all of Abraham's blessings because now we're united to the one who is the heir of all those promises. It's Christ. One more verse in Galatians 3. Last verse of the chapter, verse 29. Let me back up to 28. 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So, from Galatians 3, we can conclude this. The offspring of Abraham is Christ, and all those who are in Christ by faith. The offspring of Abraham is Christ and all those who are in Christ by faith. And that's Old Testament and New Testament. You didn't get any blessings from Abraham if you weren't a believer. Yeah, sure, you're in the nation. You're a citizen of the nation of Israel. Congratulations. But if you are an unbeliever, if you're a covenant breaker, if you're lawless, you're cut out. You don't inherit the blessing you're out. It's only the believers who actually end up inheriting anything. Not just being Jewish, but being faithful like Abraham was. And the ultimate faithful son of Abraham is Christ. And he inherits the blessings and everyone who is in Christ by faith inherits with him. That's why Paul calls us in Romans 8, joint heirs with Christ. All believers in all nations through all ages are the one people of God. There aren't two different peoples of God. There is a single people of God from Adam to whoever the last person saved is. Somewhere in the book of Revelation, towards the end probably. They're all in the same people. But they're not all under the same kind of covenant meaning there are not all New Testament believers. Some of them are Old Testament believers. And there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the difference isn't we have one people of God over here, and we have another people of God over there, and never the twain shall meet. What this means is for our passage is that when God addresses Zion, he's talking to the church. And that's why we can sing Psalm 122a and pray for the peace of Jerusalem and all these blessings in the walls of Jerusalem because the fulfillment of that is the church. Israel is the church under the old covenant and the church is Israel under the new covenant. The church hasn't replaced Israel. The new covenant has replaced the old covenant. That's the difference. We become the children of Abraham by faith. And by faith, we become members of his covenant. And by faith, we receive the promised blessings. So in Christ, Christian, these are your blessings. Verse 3 is your blessings. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. In Christ, the, this is your covenant. This is why when we were kids, I don't know about you, but when I was in a kid in children's ministry, even up in the youth group, we could sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons. Anybody heard this? Many sons had Father Abraham. And I'm one of them. And I'm not Jewish. And we were taught that song as kids. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, right? I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. These are your promises, these are your blessings. Those who are of faith are the ones who receive the blessings of the covenant. Which is another way of saying those who are elect receive the blessings of the covenant. Covenant is the visible seal of your election. Now, in verses 4 to 6, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is described for us and it's fulfilled under the new covenant by Christ. Jesus comes, and the reason he inherits the promises is because he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verses 4 to 6. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples, the Gentiles. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. Where? To the peoples, to the nations, to the Gentiles. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. They wait for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look to the earth beneath. Everything else is going to vanish away and be rolled up like a garment and tossed out but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. The ultimate blessing is eternal salvation and and everlasting life. If you belong to Christ, this blessing is yours. You are an heir of salvation. And In verses 7 to 8, Isaiah concludes this first section where God opens up the dialogue with this word of comfort and hope to his people. And in those verses, God finishes off with this word of comfort in the midst of trials. He says, do not fear man. Do not fear man. He says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. The moth is going to eat them up like a garment. The worm is going to eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Do not cower, Christian, before the mockery and scorn of man. When the world reviles you, take heart. Jesus said, woe unto you when everybody speaks well of you. That means if you're ticking somebody off in a godly way, Jesus says you're doing something right. Woe to you when everybody speaks well of you and is at peace with you because there are enemies of the gospel out there who revile what you believe and if they love you and don't have anything bad to say about the thing you believe that contradicts what they believe are you really living it out in front of them? Woe unto you when everybody speaks well of you. Jesus says that and then Paul says as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everybody. So you've you got two things to do. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. Don't go around starting fights and you know, getting online and, and hollering at people. Right? A keyboard warrior. <laughs> be at peace with all people as much as it's possible for you to do. But woe to you if everybody at the end of all that is still at peace with you. How do you live that tension? How do you live that balance? We need the scriptures. We need the wisdom. The point here is, don't fear those who revile and mock what you, th- what you think and say and believe. Those who say horrible, dismissive things about your Bible or your Jesus. Don't be afraid of them. You are the chosen people of God. God. You are in Christ. You're an heir of salvation. You're going to inherit fullness of joy in the world to come, and your enemies are all going to perish while you overwhelmingly conquer. That's what God is promising to these Israelites in bondage. One day, those Babylonians will be history, and you will be my free, glorious people. What a word of comfort. Suffering, Christian, suffering threatens to make us forget God's promises. Suffering makes you tend to forget God's promises. And so we need to be reminded of his covenant commitment to us. This is the first unbreakable element in the rock of Zion. This unbreakable covenant. Look to God's covenant promises and put your hope in that in the midst of your trial, your tribulation, your suffering, your dismay. You will never perish, Christian, because you belong to Him. He will never let you go because of His solid, eternal covenant bond with you. We might be unfaithful from time to time. He never will be. He never will be. He has a love that will not let us go. And He has sworn His covenant promises to you. And so, you do what we sang, standing on the promises of God. That's number one, an unbreakable covenant. What's the second element in this unbreakable rock of Zion? Well, here we come to Zion's reply to God, verses 9 to 16. Now, look what look at Zion's response in verse 9. So, God gives this word, your enemies will perish, you're going to live forever. What do you have to say, Zion? And they say, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now that sounds nice, but the context is, Zion is responding from their pain and from their anguish in exile, and they are actually questioning God in this passage. What they're doing is they're reminding Him of what he says. They're reminding him of the Exodus. They're reminding him of the wilderness wandering. They're reminding him of these promises about future glory and redemption and being freed from exile and slavery and being saved and rescued and delivered. They're reminding God of these things. And do you notice how it starts? It says, Awake, awake. You know what they're doing? They're saying, Hey, wake up, God. Wake up, man. Uh, you've fallen asleep on the job, God. You, you're the God of Exodus. You're the God of creation and covenant and all these promises, and look where we are. What about all this? We'll obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You promised that, but I'm not, I'm not feeling any of the gladness. I don't see any of my sorrow and my sighing fleeing away. I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I'm going through it. Life's crippling me, crushing me, squeezing me to death. I don't know how we're going to make it another week. This is where they are. They're telling God, you need to wake up. you need to, you, you got some promises to keep. How about let's see some, let's see some promise-keeping, God. What about that covenant? Doesn't look like you're keeping your covenant. Wake up and bless us already. Not only does suffering threaten to make us forget God's promises, it also tempts us to doubt God's goodness. Just like the Israelites in exile, our own suffering our own suffering makes us call into question God's faithfulness his righteousness it it makes us call into question his love and his plan and his power and his wisdom pain and loss drive our fallen hearts to resent god because too often we feel entitled to his blessings I believe in you and I'm going to church and I'm tithing and I'm serving and I'm trying to walk faithfully and I'm trying to be obedient and look at me getting beat to death. Where's my blessing, God? Where's all that goodness you promised? Where's that love I keep reading about? I don't see it. I don't feel it. What are you doing? Wake up. You're falling asleep on the job. This is what the disciples did to Jesus. In the boat, when the storm came and he's asleep... And they're like, Master, Master, we're perishing. Don't you care? You're going to wake up and do something? You're just going to let us drown? We're drowning. We're perishing. That's Israel's response. And too often that's our response. We're going through it, and we start to call into question the Lord's faithfulness to us. But God responds to this in verses 12 and 13. He says, I, I, he repeats himself, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? of the Son of Man who was made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, that your Maker, who stretched out the heavens, who laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? Who? In other words, guys, I know who I am. I know who I am. I don't need you to remind me who I am. It's... you've got the problem. This is his rebuke. I know who I am. He says, you are the one who's forgotten me. I haven't forgotten you. Verse Verse 13, you've forgotten the Lord, your maker who stretched out the heavens. You're the one who has forgotten me. Proof? You want proof? He says, you fear man continually. You walk in the fear of people and not the fear of me. We fear man and his mockery rather than God. We think suffering means God has abandoned us or is sleeping on the job. And we live in fear of people instead of God. God says we have forgotten who he really is. And therefore we don't know who we really are. He reminds us in verses 14 to 16 that he is still our God and we are still his people. then he says in verses 15 and 16, I the Lord, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Your suffering does not negate being my people. Going through suffering is not a contradiction of being loved by God and belonging to God. But too many times we think it is. We must deal with our suffering the way 1 Peter 4:19 tells us. He says, "Let those who suffer according to God's will." Did you catch that? Let those who suffer according to God's will. Let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Your suffering does not mean that God has forgotten who He is. And it does not mean that He has forgotten or abandoned you. He is your faithful creator. Entrust yourself to Him. Trust Him with your pain with your loss, your hardship, and your tribulation. He created all things. He created you. He made you into a born-again believer in Jesus. And he is continuing to form and fashion you into the image of Christ. He has not forgotten his covenant promises. He is faithful. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust your soul to a faithful creator. God being faithful to you and sparing you from suffering are not in opposition. They actually go together. It's just that we never think, when, we're, when we experience some kind of pain or loss or hardship, we never think to ourselves, man, look how much God loves me. And, and not say that in a sarcastic way, like, wow, oh, look how much you know. But to actually say, wow, look at this. Look at this trial God's putting me through. Look how much he loves me. We just, we, we don't have that category. We do not think that way. But that's because our, our thinking isn't fully biblical. For more on that, read Romans 5. This is the second indestructible element of the rock of Zion. The firm foundation beneath your feet that will sustain you through your suffering. God is your faithful creator. He's the creator of the world, and He is the one who cares for you. He made you for Himself, and He is using the hardships and trials of life to form and fashion you to be more like Christ. And ultimately, what He's doing is He is refining you for heaven. He is making you fit for heaven. And only those who have fallen out of love with this world are the ones who are ready to be in the world to come. He cares for you in his providence. And he cares for you in his grace. We do not need to fear our enemies. Put your confidence, Christian, in your faithful creator. We've seen the unbreakable covenant. That's element one. Element two is that God is a faithful creator. And now finally, God is a righteous judge. In the final section now, God has a final word to say to his people. In verse 17, he begins like this. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. I love that. They, they opened up their dialogue with God by saying, Awake, awake, wake up, God. And I love his responses. No, no, no. You need to wake up. <laughs> you wake up. I'm not asleep. You are. I love that. God tells Zion, wake up, guys. And now God tells us, He tells us that we are the ones who have been sleeping on Him not the other way around. He explains why Israel is suffering in the exile at length here from verses 18 through 20. What he says is is that Israel has endured the wrath of God upon their sin. That's why they're in exile. It's the wrath of God. Their suffering is brutal, it is devastating, it is lengthy, but it's not because God's being mean to them. It's not because he is treating them unfairly or picking on them. Poor old innocent Israel and God's just smashing them. No. No, what God's doing is he is being the righteous judge that he is. He is the one who holds the guilty accountable for their sins. And you, you know this. A good judge always punishes the evil and acquits the innocent and rewards the good. That's what makes him a good judge. A good judge, a righteous judge, upholds the law and executes justice perfectly, fairly. And that means he can't let the guilty off scot-free. Problem is, we're all guilty. So how are any of us getting out of it? Well, remember, God's righteousness also includes his unwavering Commitment to uphold his end of his covenant with you. That's part of his righteousness as well. He would be unrighteous if he broke his covenant. That's what unrighteousness is. It's covenant breaking. It's transgressing the law of the covenant. Lawlessness to the covenant obligations. And therefore God declares in verses 22 and 23 that the time has come when he will plead our cause for us. He will take this cup of wrath out of our hands, and he will put it into the hands of our enemies, and they will perish, and we will remain. Look what he says. He says, thus says the Lord, verse 22, your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. He says, no more. I'm taking that cup of wrath away from them, from you, and I'm handing it to them. But wait a minute. Time out. If we are guilty, how can God plead our cause without becoming unrighteous. He'd be like a he'd be like a lawyer who defends a criminal that he knows is guilty and who lies and twists the truth in court to get him off the hook. Is that what God's doing? His righteousness dictates that he deals with our sin. And so what does he do for you? to get around this problem. When he takes the cup of wrath out of your hand, he first hands the cup to Jesus who drinks it down to the last drop for us on the cross. Remember Gethsemane? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What's he talking about? What's in the cup? It's the cup of wrath against our sin. That's what the saving righteousness of God does. Remember verse 5? Look back at verse 5. He says, My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My righteousness and my salvation... The saving righteousness of God takes the cup of wrath away from you and hands it off to your substitute who drinks it for you at Calvary. That's why in verse 11 we're called the ransomed of the Lord, ransomed by the blood of Christ. God really is a righteous judge who holds the guilty accountable for their sins. But in order to save his people, he holds Jesus accountable for our sins. Jesus pays for our sin in our place. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Christ saves us from the wrath of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to sin all we want, right? It doesn't mean that we are doesn't mean that we get to sin with impunity, and it also doesn't mean that we will never ever suffer. Even after we're saved, God doesn't simply let us get away with sin. No, He is angry with sin. He does rebuke us for our sin, but it's not wrath like the Israelites experienced in the exile. Something has changed. Jesus took your wrath. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And that means your suffering is not condemnation from God. That means your suffering is the loving discipline of a good and gracious Father. We are to count it all joy, James says, and to have no fear. We are to see suffering as our faithful companion. Now, that does not for a second deny how horrifying evil and suffering is in this world. How truly horrifying pain and loss and suffering is. It doesn't diminish it for a second. But it does reframe how we look at it. It does change our whole perspective on how to experience our suffering. We are to let it have its full effect We are to let it have its full effect on us, designed by God, which is this, to help us grow and to refine us for heaven. This is the third indestructible element in the rock of Zion, our firm foundation. The unbreakable covenant, the faithful creator, and a righteous judge. Listen, O oh suffering Christian, hear the word of the Lord to you today. The worst that this world and the devil and all your enemies can throw at you can never, can never and will never destroy you. Even if it kills you, you will live through it because there is eternal life in the world to come. You are an heir of eternal glory. You are an heir of everlasting joy. When it feels like everything else in your life is about to give way, bow your head in prayer, meditate on this word from God, and feel your feet beneath you. You are standing on the rock of Zion. You are planted on a firm foundation. Remember the unbreakable covenant and stand on the promises of God. Entrust yourself like Jesus in His suffering to your faithful Creator. Yield yourself like Jesus did to your righteous judge who pleads your cause and judges for you, always for you, and never against you. Remember Jesus, the cornerstone of, Of your salvation, the mountain of God, the rock of Zion. Remember and stand firm, Christian. When everything else is shaking, you can remain steady and steadfast. So take heart and be of good cheer and fear not. You are marching unto heavenly Zion to receive your inheritance. You are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the cornerstone, the foundation of the church, the foundation of our salvation, the one who has secured our way to the Father, the one who has conquered heaven and earth for us the one who rules for us, the one who is always pleading our cause for us, the one who took away all the wrath so that nothing we go through in this life is your condemnation. Nothing we experience is your wrath. Fatherly displeasure, rebuke, loving discipline, absolutely. But wrath and condemnation and judgment and damnation, never It is all flowing from your grace, purchased by the Lord Jesus. Oh God, we thank you for these precious promises we can stand upon. And help us not to fear man, but help us to stand with courage and boldness and to face nobly all the things that we suffer according to your will. Help us to think biblically about our trials and to cling to your word and to stand firm upon the rock of Zion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.